Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Transfer Window with me, Henry McRae, and podcast regulars, Duncan Castles and Ian McCarry. Coming up, we've got something very special as a real bona fide runs around and kicks the ball Premier League footballer will be on the podcast as Ian talks to Brighton and Hove Albion striker Glenn Murray about the transfer window from a player's point of view. Before that, we'll talk about Carlo Ancelotti and his likely move back to the Chelsea odd seat and former Manchester United player Johnny Evans and a possible January move to the blue half of Manchester. And while we're on that subject, We'll have a look back at last weekend's Manchester Derby at Old Trafford. But first, Duncan is going to fill us in on an unexpected candidate to be the new manager at Paris Saint-Germain. Well, it's not necessarily a new manager heading to Paris. It's a potential new manager heading to Paris. Um, The information is that um, Paris Saint-Germain's sporting director, Antero Enrique, has uh, contacted um, Andre Villas-Boas, the former Chelsea, Tottenham and FC Porto coach, and asked him not to take another job um, and without telling Antero that he has an approach from another club, um, essentially because Antero sees him as a candidate to potentially succeed um, in Emery as manager of Paris Saint-Germain. As we know, Emery is under severe pressure there, um, both from his squad, who are unhappy with the way he's been managing them, a lot of dissent, um, particularly from Neymar, their most important player, um, and also under pressure from the club, who would have changed him in the ahead of this season if they'd been able to find the right coach to come in and have tasked Antero with um, finding a, a suitable replacement at the end of the season should they fail to achieve their targets for this season. Avios is not really the, the candidate you'd expect to be first choice on the Qatari owners um, front, although they have offered him the job previously, and he does have a good relationship with the, the president. Um, he turned the job down when he was Tottenham Hotspur coach um, after his first season there. But he would be prepared to um, take the job on a short-term basis um, for six months. So. I think Antero's thinking is, should we need to change Emery mid-season, which might be a strategic thing to do because of the problems within the dressing room, then I can get someone of Villas-Boas' quality and who I know well from working with him at FC Porto and allow him to continue to the end of the season and then we can look again at where we stand going into next season. I think this is um, tactically an interesting move um, by PSG. Duncan, because we, we know that, and you've explained that the, the unhappiness um, in the dressing room with Dunai Emery's method, with his way of um, dealing with certain players, etc., etc. Um, any manager, let's say, of the elite coaches is not available right now and therefore would not take 
PSG on mid-season. Um, AVB, as we love to call him in, in the United Kingdom, um, is someone who's available, who um, technically is a very, very good coach, and uh, and who is a, you're someone who I think would be able to take that job for, say, five, six months. And obviously, um, in doing that, um, would be able to prove himself as a, as a potentially long-term successor to Emery should he achieve the um, goals which the Qatari owners um, are desperate to do, uh, mainly the Champions League, um, because obviously everyone expects PSG with their resources and with the squad they have to win Ligue 1. So, um, and obviously the relationship between um, the sport director at PSG and AVB is, is very, very close. Um, they've known each other for, I think, more than a decade. Uh, yeah, I think even the families um, are quite close as well in terms of the, um, the kids, etc., and, and going on holidays together. So um, in terms of um, the working relationship between sport director, administrators and the head coach would be much more amicable uh, and much more uh, fluid than it is currently under Unai Emery. So uh, smart move, I think, by Antero. Uh, to um, to approach AVB and and discover if he is um, willing to uh, to come to Paris in the next few weeks. But um, as I, um, would he would he be an option? I mean, there's an interesting right. story, isn't there, about 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 his interest in motorsport, Duncan? Is that right? Yeah, I and mean, Fiat is a, a, a motorsport fanatic, a complete nut. Um, I think collector of of cars, um, always goes to uh, the Grand Prix. As, as often as he can, um, has taken part in uh, lower-level uh, motorsport events himself, both on a motorcycle and in a car. And he is he's currently registered to take part in the Dakar Rally, um, which starts, I think, 6 January in Peru. And he's going to be the co-driver with, uh, with a fellow Portuguese um, specialist driver. And, um, of course, assuming that PSG don't change their manager by the time the Dakar rally starts and he's called upon by Antero to come in and, and, and take over that job. As to what he's been doing, he's been in China for the past year at uh, Shanghai SIPG, um, finished second in the Chinese Super League and runners-up in the Chinese FA Cup. Um, so he's now a free agent. His contract was uh, was terminated by mutual consent. I don't think his boys, particularly his family, didn't enjoy being in China. And um, he's now ready to resume his career in, in Western Europe, having been at Zenit St. Petersburg and won the, the Russian title there um, before. Um, and if PSG doesn't happen, I would, I would keep an eye on Villas-Boas as a candidate, particularly for um, a Serie A club. He's a guy who might end up at um, one of the Milan teams, potentially, if this Paris job doesn't come off. But... As you analyse, Ian, it's a, it is a great opportunity, potentially a great opportunity for him to take over uh, an excellent squad. Obviously, he has the, the, lingu the linguistic skills in French, English um, and Portuguese to handle that kind of team and, um, and then see what can be done with them this season and then maybe grasp hold of that and carry on in the position. Seems of course, absolutely mental to me. But anyway, well, no, wait, um, hey, Henry, what would be interesting, and this is like you know, I'm, I'm obviously speculating beyond what the EVB appointment might be, but he's got a brilliant relationship still with Gareth Bale, who, as we've said many times on the Transfer Window podcast, is going to be available for transfer next summer. And if PSG wanted to 
bring another Galactico in. Then AVB with the man to persuade Gareth Bale to go to Paris rather than Manchester United or possibly Bayern Munich. So um, that would be a, another interesting twist and I'm sure one which Antero knows uh, very well um, with regards to how things may work out next summer as well. So, well, well, Ian, you're saying, you're saying that there are no elite managers available at the moment, but there is one in particular. Indeed, there is. Um, Carlo Ancelotti, who's been there before, obviously. Mr Ancelotti will not be returning to PSG, Henry, that's for sure, because he will be moving back to London in February next year, having spent... What is he going to be doing while he's there? He'll be waiting to um, replace Antonio Conte at Chelsea. That's right. what he'll be doing, because he has been uh, spoken to by Chelsea uh, with regards to succeeding Conte, who or uh, everyone at Chelsea believes will not be there beyond the end of this season. Indeed, if things um, go badly, especially in Champions League knockout stage, may even leave before the end of the season, and Carlo um, will be in situ waiting to uh, take up his job and uh, return to Chelsea, uh, whether it be uh, mid-season or whether it be next summer, then that's what will be happening. So um, something we talked about, I think, three or four uh, weeks ago on the podcast. So you're, um, conf- you're confident Carlo Ancelotti will be Chelsea manager before the end of the season? Uh, not before, necessarily, if Conte sees it out. But um, I think the defeat to West Ham and the way that Chelsea played was very poor last weekend. They also redeemed themselves somewhat um, this week in terms of um, winning. Um, but uh, I, I don't believe that um, the Chelsea hierarchy uh, are in a situation where they think that he will he, he will definitely be gone by the end of by next season. But Ancelotti moving to London is significant because um, he's had those talks with Roman Abramovich. Um, he is a preferred candidate to replace Conte um, and change the management style back to one where it's less abrasive, less confrontational. Uh, Ancelotti famous for being more diplomatic and listening to his players and how they want to play, etc. And allowing so why, them a chance to express the, themselves. Why is he the right man for the job now when he, he clearly wasn't when he was fired as the, as the uh, reigning you know champion? Do you know what, Henry? The interesting thing about Ancelotti's sacking was it came the season after he'd won a double, uh, Premier League and FA Cup double for Chelsea. Um, and even Roman Abramovich clearly now believes that that was premature. He was sacked having taken Chelsea to second in the Premier League in the 2010 season, um, having, as I said, won the Championship uh, and the FA Cup the season prior. Um, I think this is typical Abramovich management, man management, that is. Um, he goes from one extreme to the other. So he takes on uh, an abrasive, confrontational, charismatic uh, type coach like Mourinho, like Conte has been. Then he reverts to a more placid, diplomatic, uh, someone who he believes will um, listen to the dressing room, listen to the people above, be much more compliant with regards to the transfer policy. Remember when Ancelotti first joined, he came from... Uh, many years at AC Milan, where um, basically the transfers were done by people uh, above him, mainly Silvio Berlusconi, um, who bought players and were given to Ancelotti. And Ancelotti is much more, um, let's just say, he, he he's used to that way of working, um, whereas he's not the micromanaging uh, control freak uh, that Mourinho is or Conte is, or Conte has become, in fact, uh, this season. 
so you won't get these constant kind of um, rows and you know stories of there being unhappiness or discontent because he's not got the player he wants or he's not even um, been consulted on a player that's been brought in because obviously Chelsea don't operate that way and they haven't done for, for many years. So I think that's why um, Ancelotti is seen as the next man and the right man to, to replace Conte because he won't cause any kind of rows within the club regarding transfer policy. And also, as I said, he, he's a very good man-manager. And you've got several players at Chelsea now, like Sveden Hazard, Thibaut Courtois, um, who have got the opportunity to leave if they wish, specifically uh, with Real Madrid interested in both. And Ancelotti might be the man to persuade them to sign new contracts and stay because he will uh, put the arm around them, listen to what they think about tactics, the way that Chelsea play, the style they play, um, rather than be told like uh, teacher to student in the way that Conte does. So I think that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the main reasons why Chelsea now want to welcome him back. Look, Chelsea have gone, Roman Abramovich has gone back on a sacking and hired a manager again already once in his time at Chelsea, very famously. And, and the Ancelotti situation is, is pretty similar to the, the Mourinho situation in that um, Abramovich, after dismissing uh, a manager and then moving on to the next one, in Mourinho's case, Avram Grant, that he had acted in, in a in not the smartest of fashions to get rid of uh, his previous manager and, and quickly moved to rebuild the relationship. In Mourinho's case, he famously had a, um, a limited edition Ferrari delivered to Mourinho in Portugal as a, as a, a reconciliatory gift um, uh, only a few months after he had uh, sacked him as manager of Chelsea. Uh, and Duncan, then... you, you, got to t- you got to tell everyone about the, the uh, brass plate on that Ferrari as well, and what was engraved on the it. The brass plate. I, I don't. I don't know about the brass plate. You have to tell. Them. It, it it said the special one. It was it was underneath ah, okay. the glove comp- underneath the glove compartment. It was screwed into the uh, into the Ferrari bodywork, saying special one. Uh, so therefore, it was it was it was even handmade for Jose. Yeah, it was it was such a limited edition that they were all individually made for um, their owners. But I didn't know he put the special one plaque. Yeah, in I'm, je- I'm jealous. I don't have a brass plaque on my Ferrari. You also you also <laughs> don't have a four door Ferrari, Henry, which is one of the most rare Ferraris around. And sounds, that's what, and that's what Josie got. <laughs> it was a four door Ferrari. They don't exist. Well, I have a rally grifter. Um, <laughs> I I believe- well, that, that was nineteen seventy seven. Sorry. You'd know. You probably know more about this, Ian, because you're you're closer to Carlo than I am. But I believe Abramovich gifted Carlo something not long after his dismissal as Chelsea manager as well as a kind of as a reconciliatory gesture. Is that not right? He did. Um, it was a, a very very rare watch. Um, uh, Rolex, I think. Um, Daytona. Would that be right? I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I'm uh, mixing up your Ferraris. With I'm your... mixing my Ferraris, aren't I? <laughs> But it was. It was a watch. Carlos collects, collects watches. And um, he got a very, very rare one from Roman, which was a gift. Again, a reconciliatory gift. Um, after three or four months after he left Chelsea, I think uh, Roman... And what uh, did that from Grant get? A job uh, in an ice cream box or something? <laughs> well, if you, know, if you know that for sure. Write <laughs> yeah, it, son. Write it. Okay, right. Let's move on. Enough for Carlo Ancelotti. Um, 
Ian, you've got a story on, um, you know, something we've discussed before, but a potential uh, transfer in January involving the league leaders, Manchester City. Indeed, indeed. Um, Pep Guardiola, very interestingly, has said in the last seven to ten days, Henry, that um, he needs to recruit uh, a defender in January. Um, bizarre because uh, of how much money they invested in their defence in, in the summer window, uh, if you think about it. However, clearly with John Stone's injury, I'm just going to keep him out until at least January, if not beyond. And um, he feels that uh, Johnny Evans, the West Brom captain, who they tried to buy in, uh, in August uh, of this year, should become a Manchester City player uh, in order to bolster uh, that part of their squad. Um, they failed in that bid, uh, interestingly, mostly because then-manager Tony Pulis had a very good relationship with Evans, um, convinced Evans that, that he, he, should, he should stay because at the time in his career, he's in his 30s now, um, he wants to play every game, wants to make the most um, of the time he has left playing and therefore capsing West Brom and uh, and being part of uh, a very um, stable situation, if you like, uh, at the Hawthorns would be the best thing for him. Interestingly, there was no new contract offer um, under the interest from uh, Manchester City to Evans. Um, I understand he currently earns around £80,000 a week. Um, but new information is that Manchester City have... Uh, representatives have gone to the player himself... Um, told him that he, he will earn um, upwards of £130,000 a week uh, if, he, if he moves to the Etihad uh, on a generous three or four year contract, three years I think with one year option and it now remains uh, just for the, a fee to be agreed with West Brom for that transfer to happen in January obviously since uh, the situation in the summer, Pulis has been sacked and Alan Pardew's taken over there, Pardew doesn't have the same relationship with Evans, I don't think he values them quite as much as Pulis did. And in fact, he sees the opportunity of recouping some 25, 28 million pounds in uh, transfer fee as a way of him being able to invest uh, in his current squad and improve his current squad uh, to help them stave off the relegation battle that they find themselves in right now. So I, I, I would foresee that, that that is a transfer that will now happen in January. Um, as I said, the the agreement appears to have been reached between player and Manchester City. It's just about the, the fee being agreed with West Brom now. It makes a lot of sense that they, they move for Johnny Evans. As you say, they wanted him in the summer. He's good at playing the ball on the deck, which is obviously fundamental to to Guardiola when he's he's setting out his defence. And they've got, you know, as you, Stones injured at present, which is always something you have to be careful at uh, rehabilitating to, to make sure you don't have the problem recurring during the season. And company obviously has succumbed once again to to um, injury in the Manchester derby at the weekend. And, and Guardiola is well aware that he can't count on company for any length of games, which leaves him currently either putting Fernandinho back into central defence and, and missing a, a key element of his midfield, or starting with Mangala and Otamendi at, at centre-backs, which is uh, does not suit his way of playing uh, in, in any fashion. So Manchester City obviously planning to improve on the position they're already in, which is clear at the top of the Premier League table, um, even more so following last weekend's 
victory at Old Trafford against Manchester United. It's basically been seen as a convincing victory, uh, dominant uh, on the ball, lots of possession, and uh, you know clearly the best team in the Premier League at the moment. But Duncan, how did you see the game? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the characterisation after the game was that this was comprehensive and um, as Pep Guardiola decided in his humble fashion to describe it in the press conference that Manchester City better in every department seems to have been the consensus view. I actually um, do this occasionally with the really big games, especially the ones where you're looking at really tactical coaches like Mourinho and Guardiola. And having watched the game and sort of live commented on it, I then watched it again the next morning, just just actually focusing on the match and trying to see what additionally what what was happening within it, um, especially after the context of of listening to what the managers had said about it. And I, I I mean I felt this at the time, but particularly felt it after watching it again. It's what what you've got there is a real contrast of styles and and two managers implementing styles that they think will will best serve them against their opponent who they know is really strong and who, who they know who they know whose players are very strong. And I mean Mourinho talked about it in the in the press conference sort of come with your theories and ball possession, uh, come with whatever theories you want. But he emphasized that the apparent control is not real control, apparent control of Manchester City. And and I think that's what it was. It's actually my view of the game was it's very balanced match. Um, there weren't many chances for either side. It was decided by mistakes on both teams, unusual mistakes, particularly unusual on the part of Manchester United to lose two goals at set pieces and also two bad mistakes by Manchester City to, to let it be equalised. But what were City doing? They were doing what they always do, which is try and control the ball on the deck, try and get the ball as close to the opposition goal, um, wear them down, score within the penalty box they actually made very few clear-cut chances within the penalty box. Their shot count is higher than Manchester United, but a lot of those shots were long-distance shots, which are, you know, it's kind of a statistical deception if you look to shot counts. What's better, a 35-yard shot over the hopeful shot over the bar or a long pass through that the striker doesn't quite manage to get a hold of, which if it had a one-on-one in the goalkeeper, for example, early on in the game. And that's what United were playing for. They're without... Paul Pogba, the guy who's most likely to, to carry the ball from defence um, for them. So they, they were essentially looking either to work Martial through the midfield um, and Lingard for quick breaks or to get the ball to one of their forward players quickly in a good position, not just a, a random punt down the pitch, but a diagonal pass that opened the defence out. And they, they made, if you watch the game again, they made a lot of those opportunities through the match. Um, and ultimately, ultimately, it, the reason the, the game wasn't drawn was um, an excellent double save by Ederson and the, and the referee not awarding penalty for Ander Herrera. So I think it's actually a lot closer than, than people have presented it as. And if in a game like that, usually the first goal... Um, decides who the winner is. You don't really see in these top uh, opponent matches teams coming back from a goal down because it makes it so difficult for them to play. So, all going the other way, had United not made a stupid mistake at Man City in, we could be looking at a completely different result. And I don't, I just don't accept the um, 
the characterization of certainly of Guardiola that his team were were better in every department because it just that simply wasn't the case. Ian, do you agree? Um, I think the um, the match was settled by Romelu Lukaku, um, and that was fairly obvious to everyone that um, Lukaku's defensive um, play is short of uh, what his idol Didier Drogba's was. Didier Drogba was often described by consecutive managers Chelsea being the best defender they had because he was the one person in any set uh, play um, from the opposition who would be given the freedom not to mark a player but in fact to attack the ball and uh, in doing so if you watch Drogba's um, sort of career Chelsea career you will see him at corners at free kicks defending in the box and often he is the first man and I'd say probably in excess of 50% of the time who gets the first touch on any ball coming in to that penalty area. Now, Lukaku clearly is more naive. Um, he's younger, obviously. He made a couple of mistakes in a very big game, which effectively gifted Manchester City two goals. Um, if I was Jose Mourinho, I'd be making sure that um, Lukaku was nowhere near my penalty box in the future with regards to um, uh, defending set pieces. And in fact... Um, in bringing in or trying to bring in a new defender in January, which uh, Duncan obviously broke that news exclusively last week on the transfer window, uh, but Alexandro, then I think they would be able to um, remedy that issue. I'm not saying that Lukaku is not going to be involved in defending anymore, but he shouldn't be anywhere near the ball. He should be marked. Well, he wasn't for most of the game because, you know, not only was he put at defending, but he wasn't really very good at attacking either. I mean, that sounds like uh, an elaborate... Uh, excuse for Manchester United's performance, as far as I can see. Maybe Manchester United fans can let us know what I what they think. Sorry, not what I think. But you know, <laughs> uh, if if uh, Man Man City had a lead and they had the ball, you know, if they didn't have a lead, maybe they would have chased chased more chances. And and you know, it was kind of hard for yeah. for United to, to get back into the game when you know they were chasing shadows for much of the game and 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 kicking it long to a centre forward who was. Largely anonymous. Duncan's point is very is insightful. You looked at two different ways of playing the game, and um, unfortunately, the, the consensus view does tend to be, especially in retrospect, because Manchester City won, and obviously they've uh, improved their you know, at Old Trafford. At Old Trafford. Yeah, yeah, at Old Trafford, yeah. Yeah. So, so the Manchester United tactic is let's let Man City come to Old Trafford and have the ball and play it on the deck while we will just defend and kick it long. Is that is that what we're okay. saying? Is right. tactical. Right. We're not saying that that's the tactic. That wasn't the tactic. The tactic is to play quick transition football. So if you look at the best of Manchester United's attacks, they usually go from one penalty box to the other inside three seconds. Running the ball, usually two, three, four passes. Um, it was about one ball. second that, that, just that, yeah. put through the ball. But Henry, they weren't... Put, that wasn't <laughs> the reason. Watch the watch the game again. Watch the game again. Watch the. the well, listen, the, I don't. I do not doubt that. Um, you know, and, and, Manchester and City did not. Listen. No, Manchester City did not create a load of chances. But Manchester City didn't have to create a load of chances because <laughs> they were winning. But but Henry, how did Chelsea overcome the great Barcelona side to win the semi final of the Champions League to go to the final? Do you remember how that was? Twenty seven percent possession they had, right. and they still they beat Barcelona two one in that game. Yeah. But Manchester City did win 2-1 at Old Trafford. I'm just saying, there are different ways to play football than simply have the ball. Manchester United fans, let us know. Is that the way you want to play? 
interested to hear well, your thoughts. They they did win, but the the point yeah, is, and they were and they were a much better not, football team. Much better. They were better in every department. United were, not good, attack, they were not good in midfield and they were not good in defence. Manchester United. <laughs> it was there for everyone to see. It well, was, if you, tell me I'm wrong. I'm <laughs> trying to tell you you're wrong, but you don't want to listen. Henry, I, think, <laughs> I, I, don't, think, I don't agree with your thesis. Duncan. Henry, everyone who listens to this podcast knows that the simple mistake that Mourinho made was not playing Zlatan in midfield. Exactly. Okay. Um, well, Ian, you raised the uh, Alexandro issue that um, you know the story that uh, Duncan broke on this podcast last week. So news this week seems to be suggesting that he is uh, confirmed, uh, as Duncan said, that he's keen to leave Juventus. Um, but uh, the 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 line that's being written in most of the media is that he prefers a move to Chelsea. Well, <clears throat> what the player prefers isn't necessarily what Juventus prefers, Henry. And as we've discussed before, Alexandro was very much an Antonio Conte signing. He was the choice of, of Conte to come into um, central defence for, for Chelsea at the start of the season. Instead, the club went out and bought Anthony Rudiger, who has been in and out of the team and not performing very well. In fact, uh, Andreas Christensen, who's come through the Chelsea Academy, has now preferred uh, a starter for Chelsea. Uh, the, the fee uh, for Alexandro in the summer was upwards of, of £60 million. Uh, again, that would be a record for a defender. Uh, I, I just don't see um, Chelsea necessarily revisiting this because, uh, as already discussed uh, on today's podcast, they, they don't see Conte being manager there next season. So why would they invest uh, such a lot of money in a defender that that, that manager wants? Um, so despite... Um, you know what's been written this week in uh, in mainstream media. I would I would actually say that Manchester United remain in a better position to to sign Alexandro. And I think Duncan, obviously, you would know more than me that about how Jose Mourinho values him and and indeed what price he'd be willing to pay for him. Yeah, Ian, I think you're right. I think um, Manchester United have more financial firepower in this. Um, uh, battle if there is a battle to sign Alexandro than Chelsea do. Uh, Chelsea had the lead in the summer. Um, Manchester United were not, didn't have the resources then to invest so heavily in a left back and weren't bidding for the, the player. Um, Juventus were prepared to sell if their, asking, their very high asking price was met. Chelsea didn't get close to meeting it and the feeling in Antonio Conte's camp about a player that he specifically asked for was that Chelsea were happy to allow their interest to be uh, publicly known with uh, no real intention of, of signing unless the, the fee came down to a far lower level. I don't see how any of that's changed because Chelsea know Conte's leaving and he's Conte's player. Um, Manchester United have been given, or Jose Mourinho's been given the green light to spend up, up to around 90 million euros in January. If that remains, um, despite the, the supporter, we have some uh, element of supported dissent over results like Sunday, then they will have the advantages there. My information from Juventus end was that Alexandro was pushing the club to leave, which is, um, which is now generally accepted, and he was pushing the club to leave to go to Manchester United. I've no doubt that were Manchester United not able to complete the deal to another Premier League club um, were they to make them an, an offer but um, 
his his essential thing is to get out of Juventus, and I still see Manchester United as being ahead of any rival there, unless Manchester City were to decide to add Alexandro to Benjamin Mendy in in their defensive setup, and they, they were trying to get him in the summer, but eventually chose Mendy instead. If they were to do that, that really would be a slap in the face to the whole of the Premier League if they were to go and sign two um, world record uh, fees for, for left-backs and put them in the same squad, then you really know um, you know what you're up against as, as it comes to future seasons. Okay, as I said at the start of the pod, we've got a very special guest on today's show. As earlier, Ian spoke to Brighton and Hove Albion's Glenn Murray. So Glenn, um, something we don't often hear about um, and don't hear enough about is how the transfer window affects a professional footballer. Uh, it seems odd that you know everyone else in the world can change job uh, at the drop of a hat, but you guys can only move club in certain periods in the summer and January. Uh, what's that like for you guys? Um, I, I personally, obviously, I can't answer for, for for all professional footballers, but me personally, I, I think it's a good thing because. Um, it's a little bit more structured whereas you know if you're going to move and things like that rather than just being able to uh, open off at the drop of a hat at any time during the year. But in saying that, you've had personal experience of, of the pressure of moving actually on deadline day, haven't you? When uh, you moved from Palace to Bournemouth. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a strange situation to be honest because Obviously, you hear about moves via agents and, and major outlets um, for for weeks and, and even months leading up to it. And and the day that all the parties sort of come together and, and, and eventually agree on a deal, uh, it, it's all a very, very exciting time. And, and, and obviously, if it's a move that, that you're after, it's, it's even more exciting. Um, but then the, the, there is is the downfalls of it as well, which which can be quite difficult to deal with. Sort of the aftermath, and by that you mean, I guess, moving home, your family, your kids, even yeah. you know, leaving stuff behind. Yeah, uh, obviously it'll be easier for for a, a younger guy to move with 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 uh, no ties, so to say. But um, somebody of my age, or or somebody with children uh, and and a family, it's uh, it, it can be really difficult. Um, because as soon as you've put pen to paper for that club, they, they expect you at training uh, the next day, and and they expect you available for, for for the next game, which which is possibly only a matter of, matter of days away. Um, and obviously, home can be can be a number of hours away, so it, it, it's very difficult. It, literally, what once you've signed on the dotted line, you're there, and uh, and whatever you've left your left behind will join you eventually at some point. And in that situation, who who can you call on, Glenn? Who do you rely on to? Title well, for you. Yeah, I mean, th- this this is the thing. This is this is when you know who who your friends and family really are because you, I think you can a lot of people can count on one hand them, and uh, I, th- I think a lot of people rely on family. Do you think um, we obviously see from the outside the kind of um, uh, you know, the, the glamour side of a transfer, you know, yeah. the, the big money, the you know the you know, the contracts, everything else, but for you personally, I mean. It, it, what kind of upset does it has it caused in your life in terms of? I mean, with with this insight, I don't ever want to sound ungrateful or anything like that. I'm just I'm just trying to give you the the, the different perspective because we we are like everyone else. We read the papers. We we look forward to to moves happening and 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 obviously read about other other people getting moves, other players, other friends getting moves. But sort of 
once once that media attention and and that that want of a club has, has gone and and the circus that that is around that sort of the medical and the agents with you um, for for maybe two or three days beforehand. As soon as as soon as the ink's dried, sort of the agents off. He's off to uh, yeah. to look after possibly another player that he, that he's he's getting a move. The club are maybe obviously there will be people at the club that are, are trying to to help you settle in the area, but um, they will be on to to other targets and things like that. Obviously, you've left your family. Uh, you might have a wife, kids. Obviously, you, your wife's job is is to be really back with the kids. They 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 need her more than more than you do. Uh, and all of a sudden you're sort of holed up in a hotel room uh, in an area that you don't know all alone. Yeah. I think you said once before that when, once you get to know the waiting staff by name in the hotel, it's time to move out. Move out. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I've I've lived in many a hotel and, and don't get me wrong, at the beginning it's fine. You, you take your computer or whatnot and a few books and uh, and it's quite peaceful in there. But yeah, after, after a while, once you've had the menu a few times and you know the staff on, on first first name basis, then uh, yeah, I think it's time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> and as a player as well, though, I mean, if you're not moving and you're just you're, you're settled at a club, do you get quite excited the way the fans do about tracking the stories linking the club with players that are coming in talking to the dressing room about you know this and that what player might arrive what player might not yeah i think yeah it's it's obviously uh of an interest and, and sometimes more of an added interest when uh when that so-called player could be could be possibly coming in to replace you and also looking out for friends getting moves and things and 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 and, and fellow professionals that that have done well in in sort of the previous season or or, or the season leading up to the transfer window. And uh, in terms of Brighton, um, the club are um, hoping obviously sign players in in January, I think. And as again, that's something that you've been following and something you'll be following through the through the January window. Um, I try not to um, too closely because you 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 can get bogged down with it. When I, when I was a younger man, it would uh, it would maybe get to me a little bit more. Obviously, uh, I think it's it's quite uh, it's quite well reported that Brighton are after after strikers. Uh, unfortunately, never managed to get one in in the in the summer transfer window. Uh, and I'm sure again we'll be trying to get one uh, or two come come January and obviously that's uh, that's competition for me so it's difficult and, and it's, it's it's always the way that, that clubs want to go clubs always want to progress and get better than than what they've got at the current time and it's it's just it's just about me on a personal level being able to put, prove my worth whoever comes in I was going to say that I mean you've you're you know a, a man of uh, much experience many clubs as well Glenn um, you've obviously taken on board these kind of challenges before when New players come in, and you've seen them off, and you you've retained your place. Um, I'm guessing that's just something which is part of life for you. Yeah, it's it's part and parcel of, of football in general. I mean, like I just touched on there, clubs are always wanting to progress and get better, uh, better players, better facilities, uh, better coaching staff, and they're always wanting to 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 move up up the up the ladder. So, in in general, um, Glenn. Um, you you monitor things uh, generally in the Premier League. Uh, January uh, arguably is not the best time to buy players. Uh, not as much business has done in January as done in the summer. Would you expect, generally speaking, the Premier League for a lot of business to be done in this January? Can you see holes in teams or or teams who require players that uh, there's going to be a bit of money spent? 
Uh, I think we always expect uh, quite a lot of money to be spent in the in the Premier League, whether it be a summer or a winter transfer transfer window. And after after the prices, some of the prices that we we witnessed in the summer, I'm sure there'll be some big ones come uh, come January. Is it quite exciting to be in in that mix as a player? You know, because you've obviously half we're almost halfway through the season. Um, Brighton have already come up against Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, Manchester City. You play against the very best. Is it quite exciting to think about the second half of the season and think actually there might be an even better player I'm going to come up against? Uh, yeah, this year? yeah. Obviously, there's that. I mean, there's it's slightly uh, slightly worrying also as well if uh, if some of the teams uh, <laughs> strengthen like City. Geez. But no, yeah, it's 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 just an exciting time to be in the Premier League. Obviously, we've got we've got some fantastic players in it, and and I think more more than that, um, probably the caliber of manager is is possibly the highest it's ever been in the Premier League. How would you say, Glenn? How would you how would you gauge how the Premier League's changed in your years in the game? Because obviously, you've, you've you know last ten years you've been in the Premier League. Would you say it's, it, the quality's improved? Um, would you say that it's changed one way or another? Uh, my verdict on it will probably be that the um, the physical attributes have gone down in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think con- the contact contact in the sport has probably uh, diminished slightly, and the technique and quality has has definitely gone up. You you mentioned Glenn that the, the technical as in the Premier League in your time, and um, that's made. Uh, and the physicality has gone down the way. As a as a big physical striker yourself, something that you 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 um, wage your game on and you're proud of. How does that affect you, game in game out, in terms of coming up against teams that are playing, say, three at the back or four at the back, and they're sort of man mark, zonal marking? Does that is that an effect on you as a player? Uh, I try try for it not to have an effect, and I try to play to my strengths and and possibly sometimes their weaknesses. Uh, obviously, I'm never going to try and uh, run down the channel against uh, against some of them because uh, that that's not my strength. But as far as uh, as far as getting balls into the box, uh, I, I believe that's my strength, and I try I try to uh, to physically match anyone and, and and try and and try and make my runs at the right time more than anything to uh, to to get on the end of crosses. Glenn Murray, thank you very much for joining us on the Transfer uh, Window podcast. Uh, it's been great to have you and uh, have that uh, wonderful insight into what it's like for a player in Transfer Windows and also on the game itself. Um, and We wish you good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and uh, thanks for inviting me. Okay, folks, uh, great stuff. Um, hope you enjoyed the uh, the Glenn Murray segment. Um you know, we hope, we hope to do a bunch more of things like that in the coming weeks, certainly through January, uh, during the window. But I think that's it for this week. Is it, gentlemen, do we need to do a quick fair ride? I, I, we haven't done a quick fair round, but what would you like to do? Nothing. Do, okay. Do Christmas yes. singles. Christmas singles. Christmas, your favourite Christmas <clears throat> Christmas tracks. Done. Favourite. Uh, Stop the Cavalry. Stop the Cavalry. Really? John O'Louis. That's one with Manchester City in mind for the rest of the season. I think that's what other Premier League managers will be. Can you stop the cavalry? Yes. The answer is probably not. Anything by John Lennon for me, Henry? John Lennon, right. Take, okay. take your pick. I'm, I'm a sort of Phil Spector man myself. Darlene Love, baby, please come home. Although I, I am quite partial to um, uh, the Roy Wood one. Um, what's that again? I can't remember. 
wizard. I, um, I, but I, I, I like, I saw she could be Christmas. Santa Claus. That was my, <laughs> that's another of my favourites. Well, that was a hell of a party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It was Lady Claus. Let's come on. Let's be let's be let's be upfront about this. Um, but she did look quite good in a beard. Anywho, this is this is going downhill rapidly. So we'll wrap it up. Um, this has been the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, it's available on iTunes. It's available on Audio Boom, and it, it's probably available on the platform you listen to your podcasts on. But I can't be sure because that's a bit above my pay grade. We look forward to you joining us next week when we might have a, a, a special few guests in the form of an impersonator reading out some letters to Santa Claus. So watch out for that one. It should be a lot of fun. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>